Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part three of a six-part series examining the relationship between climate and security, produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest global agricultural innovation network. This episode was taped live in front of a virtual audience and featured five panelists discussing how sustainable finance can support peace and climate security. In the context of our conversation, sustainable finance is something of an umbrella term for harnessing private sector capital in the service of social and environmental goals, including the sustainable development goals. The conversation that unfolds over the course of about 55 minutes includes examples of innovative financial products, a discussion of the role of traditional development aid, and a broad conversation about what else needs to be done to scale up private sector investment and climate security. As I mentioned, this is part three in the Climate Security series produced in partnership with CGIAR. To view the other episodes in this series, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com and go to the link in the show notes to register for the next webinar in this series, which will pick up in early September. And now here is a live taping of the podcast featuring five panelists discussing Sustainable Finance for Peace and Climate Security. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the editor of the UN and Global Affairs website, UN Dispatch, and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about sustainable finance for peace and climate security is being recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast. Now, many of you who registered for the webinar ahead of time were asked a polling question. How can sustainable finance deliver peace? And I'd like to read a summary of your answers right now. Sustainable finance can be mobilized to provide alternative sources for communities, alternative income sources for communities, restore and conserve natural resources, establish social protection measures, and strengthen resilience in people and institutions to cope with various shocks. Through targeting of specific populations, i.e. the poorest within communities, sustainable finance can promote equity, reduce income inequalities, and address the root causes of poverty. These livelihood improvements are key for promoting peace. And I think the answers to that polling question tee up our conversation today very nicely. 
Sustainable and innovative finance in the global development sector is very much an emerging field. Historically, development finance has mostly been the remit of the public sector through official development assistance, or ODA, provided by wealthy donor countries. To be sure, donor governments and development assistance from official sources are still dominant in this space, but it's becoming increasingly apparent that traditional development aid through governments and philanthropy is just not sufficient to meet the needs. Uh, in fact, the United Nations estimates, estimates that there is a $2.5 trillion annual financing gap to achieve the sustainable development goals, which are due in just 10 years time. And this gap, I think, prevents a profound opportunity for private capital. Attracting private capital sector funds to fill the humanitarian climate and development funding gap may be the only way to achieve many of the sustainable development goals. And how to access and use private capital to support climate security is the topic of our conversation today. Our expert panel, which I will introduce in just a moment, will discuss how sustainable finance can be leveraged in support of what is known as the humanitarian development peace nexus. This is the idea that emergency humanitarian relief, longer term economic development, which can include climate adaptation, and conflict prevention all exist along a continuum and very much in relationship to each other. So the key question we will be tackling today is how innovative financing solutions that include private capital can better align humanitarian development and peace objectives. So to that end, I am very pleased to introduce our panel. Aditi Gupta is Manager, Market Acceleration and Design Funding at Convergence Blended Finance. Welcome, Aditi. Serena Guarnatskeli is Partner and Innovative Finance Advisor at COIS. Welcome, Serena. Giovanni Grandi is Senior Officer, Private Partnerships and Finance for Development at the Italian Agency for Development Cooperation. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Hello, welcome Giovanni. And uh, Anya Maria Wanda Grobuck is Deputy Director of Adaptation at the Green Climate Fund, or GCF. Welcome, Anya. Hello, everyone. Thanks, Mark. And Alberto Milan is Sustainable Finance Advisor, CGIAR Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security. Welcome, Alberto. Once again, welcome to everyone, and I am very excited to kick off our discussion. Uh, Aditi, I would like to start with you. Uh, using the lens of the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, can you explain the current role that blended finance is playing in the SDGs? And where is blended finance having the most impact? Where are we seeing the least such investments? Can you give us the lay of the land a little bit? Thank you, Mark. Uh, it's great to be here and uh, thank you for having me. I, I look forward to chatting with you and all the panelists today. Um, starting off with your question, I think it's useful just to take a step back and understand uh, what is a blended finance. Uh, convergence being the global network of blended finance, we define blended finance as the strategic use of catalytic capital, and I'll come back to that in just a second, from public or philanthropic sources to mobilize and increase private sector investment in sustainable development goals 
um, all aligned to the to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, so, what is catalytic capital? Catalytic capital is capital that is concessional in nature. It is below market rate return capital, so you could call it soft money. It's not looking for market rate return. So. It could be from uh, public sources like donor governments. It could be from uh, philanthropic sources like large foundations or charities. And that is money that is looking for impact first. Um, and then maybe some form of return. It could be in the form of a grant where there's no return at all, or it could be concessional debt or equity where there is some return expected. And in a blended finance transaction, a catalytic capital sits alongside with commercial capital from the private sector. And this commercial capital has a different orientation. It is looking for market rate returns. It is pension fund money. It is private equity fund money. Um, and so blended finance gets both of these capital together, uh, sources together to create more investment opportunity for uh, the sustainable development goals. And you might ask, why is this needed? Um, and as you pointed out, uh, there is currently a $2.5 trillion gap and uh, for financing the sustainable development goals. And I, I want to pause there and say it's in the trillion dollars. When you look at official development assistance flows, you look at private development assistance flows, they add up to a couple of hundred billion dollars. Um, and so the question is, how do you make up that gap? And it's the private sector that operates at the trillions of dollars scale. That is where in the capital markets, the trillions of dollars exist. And so how do you get the private sector to invest uh, in sustainable development? And blended finance as a structuring approach looks, looks to do exactly that, to create the risk return profile of an investment opportunity such that it makes the private sector attracted to invest there, but at the same time, um, the catalytic capital providers are making sure that the impact is there, the development is being achieved. Um, and so to just take it uh, as a small example, if you think of a, you know, maybe a loan facility to finance small and medium enterprises in emerging markets, um, and you're looking to attract a commercial investor into that loan facility, a commercial investor might see that opportunity and say the returns are priced right, but maybe it's just too risky for that investor to invest. Uh, if some things were to change, maybe the investor would invest there. So what, what could be done is you could have a catalytic capital provider maybe providing a cheaply priced guarantee for that facility. Um, and what that guarantee is doing is mitigating the risk for the investor, uh, the private sector investor, and saying, okay, why don't you go ahead and invest? And if, you know, if there is a default, I will make that up to you. So that is how a risk mitigation mechanism for blended finance can work to increase investment. Thank um, you. Of course, this is one yeah. type and we can talk about more later. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly dive into the nitty gritty details later in this conversation. I, I look forward to that. But let me now turn to uh, Serena to give us sort of an example of uh, blended finance and innovative finance for development uh, at, that you helped create. You were instrumental in creating what's known as the humanitarian impact bond. Can you just describe how does it work and how did you come up with this idea? Thanks, Mark, and uh, with pleasure. Thank you for having me and for facilitating such a such a fascinating discussion. 
Um, so perhaps uh, I would like to provide a little bit of context to put impact bonds in the world of blended funds and innovating funds that Aditi just described, and then I'll come to the specific example of the humanitarian impact bond. So my first comment is, as we think the background of this discussion around the complexity of the issues and the interconnectedness of the issues we're trying to solve, climate change, energy and food security and uh, peace building. And when you're thinking with, like us, we are an intermediary that focuses on structuring financial transactions that bring together public and private capital. So when you think about structuring finance for this very complex set of challenges, one challenge you have is that a lot of financial instruments do boil down to very simple terms and they do force you to think about what is the issue that I'm trying to solve and often are not able to capture all the complexity. So just to say it is a way to focus us on a specific aspect of the problem and focusing on what capital can do in a very otherwise complex ecosystem. And in that backdrop, I would like to say that as you very uh, well described at the beginning, official development assistance is uh, looking increasingly to private capital to come in and partner, yet it, it still plays such a precious role, uh, particularly when it comes to climate security and peace building, because it's a role, particularly in the areas of humanitarian assistance, relief, where grants are still the most precious and has, has to be used to Aditi's point in the most catalytic way uh, as, a, as a resource against such great needs. So coming to innovating finance, blended finance and impact bonds, I'd like to first preface that the way I like to think about them is more as a toolkit, meaning that you need to first start asking the question about what is the issue that I'm trying to solve. And when it comes, for example, specifically to impact bonds, issues often revolve around existing programs and ways to drive cost efficiencies that provide value to public funders and official development assistance that is so scarce and valuable to focus on the more cost-effective interventions. And so in a way, they, they focus very much on what in innovating finance is called performance-based funding. Well, the donors only pays truly for what they care for, which are results and outcomes. And the second feature in an impact bond is private sector, in this case, investors, and the role that they can play in an instrument. So when a donor only pays when outcomes are achieved, there is a question about who's gonna fund the program upfront. So in a performance-based grant, the service providers has to put resources and capital to use their own balance sheet to start working on the program. And then upon delivery of the results, they receive the funding. Now in an impact bond, that role is played by an investor. And this is where the private sector is brought in as a different new party often in space of, in this case, humanitarian assistance. And the private sector is willing to put capital at risk by front loading, and then they only get paid if and only if results are achieved. Which brings me to the example of the ICRC. Um, I think the way we came up with this idea was there was a general need to bring more funding and more diverse funding to the space of, in this case, physical rehabilitation. The ICRC has a huge portfolio, multi-country, multi-year, of running physical rehabilitation in many conflict-afflicted or post-conflict countries. And so often relies on, and Giovanni might be able to uh, mm -hmm. compare and explain the reasons through the donor's lens against the traditional backdrop, which is 
typically either um, contingency funding or annual grants to run operations. Now, when you think about physical rehabilitation, one thing that really helps, particularly in a conflict-afflicted country, is the how long the program takes. So there's a very long construction period, typically three years, during which staff is trained, and then there's an operation period. And so one of the questions that the IRC was facing was how can we actually rely on more sustained funding over the period? Mm -hmm. And by structuring the impact bond, not only they receive that capital upfront for five years, but we're also able to make investments that, Giovanni, I'd love to know what you think, are sometimes hard to make in the space of physical rehabilitation or humanitarian mm -hmm. assistance. In this case, it was investing in an IT system that would allow the ICRC to be, as you may know, it's a very cost-effective is seen as a very good value for money for donors mm -hmm. as an organization. By investing in this IT system up front, the ICRC is now able to improve the performance management mm -hmm. beyond what donors have traditionally um, well, uh, been able to benefit. And by so doing that, actually, they're able to improve results. So from a lens of a public donor compared to a traditional grant, they're getting more beneficiaries for the same money. Well, let's bring in that that uh, public and government perspective. Uh, Giovanni, it, it's great to have you on the conversation to have a perspective of a government in, in this. And your, sure. your government, the Italian government, played an instrumental role in the humanitarian impact bond. So could you describe that role and why the Italian government and your agency decided to invest in something like that? Thank you, Mark, and uh, happy to be on the panel. Um, well, Serena has uh, uh, perfectly well explained the mechanism of the bond. Uh, maybe uh, the, 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 the view side from a donor standpoint uh, might be interesting in the sense that, as uh, it was said before, uh, usually for humanitarian interventions, what uh, um, a bilateral donor uh, like we are, has as in, in terms of tool, uh, mainly has the grants, which is the most precious resource uh, in order to catalyze uh, the, the private investments. Uh, now, uh, the impact bond was very innovative in uh, 2017 when it was launched, because um, usually uh, the, the requirements uh, from uh, an implementing agency like ICRC was to ask for donors to provide the funding, uh, as Serena was saying, to implement the project, um, which might have uh, uh, a five-year tenor, uh, but uh, they needed the funding starting day one in order to have all the rehabilitation work done. Now, um, putting into the picture the, um, the private investors, um, this has allowed us as a donor to have uh, um, a mechanism where effectively we are uh, paying for what we get. It's a pay for result uh, instrument. And uh, the interesting thing is that um, apart from the cost of the initiative, uh, the, um, the uh, increase in performance which ICRC is committed to deliver on this initiative is, has been really the driver for which uh, as a donor, we decided uh, to uh, maybe uh, pay uh, an amount which is a little bit higher to the effective, compared to the effective costs 
of the initiative because we were sure that increasing efficiency, the number of beneficiaries would have increased. So the impact of the initiative itself would have been leveraged by the improvement uh, of the implementing agents. Uh, the target, just to give you an idea, of increase in efficiency is 80% compared to a baseline which ICRC has uh, created in terms of uh, having experience in, in the rehabilitation uh, starting 1979. So it's long-term experience that ICRC has. Uh, and so the, 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 the maximum exposure of a donor will get uh, at the, the point where the efficiency is improved by 80% compared to the baseline. So this is one of the major reasons. The second point is that um, the, uh, normally the impact bonds are used uh, not really on humanitarian uh, in the humanitarian field, because the involvement of the private sector, as Aditi was explaining before in the blending uh, activity, uh, whilst the private sector is seeking for re returns, uh, well, humanitarian typically does not give returns for an investor. So the fact of using um, an impact bond uh, on a sector which typically does not create financial returns was the second uh, challenge that we were very interested in getting. Uh, well, thank you, Giovanni. Um, I, I wanted to bring Anya into the conversation. Uh, from your perspective, as someone who works at a multilateral finance institution, um, First, can you just, for people who are unfamiliar, explain what is the Green Climate Fund? Uh, and then explain how you work with private capital to make investments in private in climate security initiatives. Yes, thanks Great. very much, Mark. Um, so the Green Climate Fund was formed under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, um, specifically as a financial mechanism. And it's a very innovative sort of fund. The board is made up of 50% developed countries and 50% developing countries. Um, and I think um, we very much fall into the category of what Aditi called catalytic capital. So um, we really look to, to de-risk uh, projects so that private investors can come in. Um, I can give you some figures as to what the Green Climate Fund has done so far. So starting in 2015 with the Paris Agreement, um, as our objective is to, is to invest in low emissions and climate resilient development in support of the Paris Agreement. We have invested 5.3 billion of our own capital to date, and with co-financing of 13.6 billion. So with a, a total portfolio of, of about $19 billion now, after five years of operation. Um, we have um, a lot of the, the world's governments on board, 194 governments working together, and um, the 
In fact, two-thirds of the work that we do is through the public sector, and one-third is through the private sector. So um, that's, that's the balance at the moment as it stands. Uh, we would love to be crowding in more private sector involvement and particularly on the adaptation side. To date, the private sector has shown more interest in the mitigation projects, renewable energy, energy efficiency and so on. But um, the interest of this panel is, is to talk about the intersection of, of development, um, humanitarian support and peace building. And this is really where adaptation comes in because the climate shocks are going to be um, potentially, you know, fueling the sort of stresses and, and increasing risks to poor and vulnerable people worldwide. And so investing in adaptation is, I think, a, a very effective way of peace building and reducing risks before the, um, before the extreme events happen. Um, well, good. Well, well, you know, we can um, maybe drill down later in this conversation and think of ways and opportunities uh, for adaptation to be a vehicle uh, for a target for private sector investment. Um, thank you. Uh, Alberto, uh, what can CGIAR do to add value to discussions about innovative finance for climate security? And what role can an institution like CGIAR play in this space? Hi, Mark. And Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, that is a really interesting question. For those of you that are not familiar with the CGR, we are the world's largest agricultural innovation network. We operate in more than 70 countries around the world, and we basically provide cutting-edge research and science to provide solutions to transform food systems. So the main uh, goal that we have is basically to build low carbon and climate resilient food systems. And then we work on the intersection between and the nexus uh, of food systems, natural resources, environment and health. So when we look at the uh, climate and uh, conflict uh, affected areas, no, we see that the underlying issues are always around natural resource management, climate, food systems. And we have a lot of experience uh, and then partners across the world uh, working in this very environment. So just to give you a concrete example, we have a sustainable finance team that specifically works with both public and private sector. On the public sector, we work with governments and international financial institutions. And then with the private sector, we work with asset owners, asset managers, and then corporates and agribusinesses. The core of our intervention is uh, helping increase and strengthen livelihoods of, of farmers that are the ones more afflicted um, by this type of uh, humanitarian context. And what we do in the sustainable finance world is basically three key areas or three key services. Not like we, we work with private sector mostly to co-design innovative investment solutions. So that can be from the design of an impact bond to the supporting the design of an impact investment fund. We have experience uh, setting up several of these innovative solutions and we have leveraged private capital on, with leverage raises of one to seven, one to eight. So that means leveraging seven times the 
in private capital uh, of the public capital that has been provided, no? of that precious capital that Giovanni and Serena were mentioning before. Then the second area of intervention that we do is providing, providing advisory services and providing research to understand better uh, or help understand better uh, where to deploy that capital and then how to work with uh, the farmers on the ground to make sure that those investments achieve the sustainable development impact and then to monitor the impact of those investments. And then the third one is around uh, generating cutting edge research so that we can provide that type of science and knowledge to the very partners that need this type of interventions. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to encourage in this next round of questions for uh, panelists to you know, feel free to engage each other. Uh, but Aditi, I'd like to go back to you. Uh, is it fair to say that of all the sustainable development ones goals, uh, sustainable development goal 16, the one related to peace and security issues, is the one in which there is the least amount of blended finance? Uh, and if so, why do you think that is? Uh, thanks, Mark. Th that's a good observation, and that is indeed correct. Um, at Convergence, uh, we recently mapped the different sustainable development goals uh, to a blended finance activity, um, and we found that uh, SDG 16 was one of the least aligned. Um, and this goes back to uh, one of the points uh, that both Serena and uh, Giovanni mentioned, that in humanitarian assistance, uh, we see a huge role for grants and grants are the most active. Um, and I think the reason for this is that we must recognize that our blended finance and sustainable activities are not a panacea. Uh, they are one tool in a toolbox and for blended finance to work, um, the underlying activity has to generate a positive financial return. There has to be some revenue generation. And so, um, as, as you had mentioned at the beginning, when you look at it as a continuum, uh, emergency humanitarian assistance, I think, is uh, most aligned with uh, traditional donor assistance and, and charitable work. Um, that is not where there is a quote-unquote money to be made. But when you look at you know, medium to long-term assistance and you look at economic reconstruction and, and resiliency, I think that's where uh, blended finance has a larger role to play. And there's a place for innovative mechanisms um, like the humanitarian impact bond uh, that was discussed. Um, but when you look at mapping across SDGs, we see that uh, blended finance has demonstrated significant alignment to climate and environment related SDGs, um, like uh, climate action, SDG 13, uh, affordable and clean energy, um, and sustainable cities. Um, but I would say that, uh, you know, as Anya had reflected also, a, a lot of the financing has been towards uh, mitigation mechanisms in blended finance and uh, adaptation mechanisms are still growing. And when you think about uh, climate security as we're discussing in this panel, um, I think uh, we need to think about cross-cutting approaches um, that are cutting across SDGs and, and, and are not in silos, while at the same time, you know, maintaining that the core of the transaction remains investable. Uh 
Thank you. And, and sort of picking up along uh, Aditi's point about sort of the emergency humanitarian assistance, not necessarily lending itself to blended finance and, and um, innovative, sustainable finance. Uh, Serena, I mean, I, do, first, do you agree with that assessment? Uh, and, you know, when you're looking across that humanitarian development piece nexus, uh, what opportunities along that nexus do you see for further investments in, from private capital? Is there a particular point along that continuum that right now perhaps isn't being tapped but ought to be? Yeah, no, great. I completely agree with Aditi's um, assessment and also where they have observed the emergence of blended funds and private sector solutions where the gaps still remain and humanitarian assistance still being uh, a place where the public uh, funding still plays a major role. So maybe I have a two pronged answer. One is that um, something like the humanitarian impact bond, although quite big, by the way, in the world of impact bonds, you know, uh, 26 million francs, it is small compared to the funding that comes from these public donors into the space of physical rehabilitation emergency assistance. And it's small even in the lens of the ICRC balance sheet, but I say small but significant. I think it has been a signal to market that it is possible to create, craft sustainable public-private partnerships in a difficult space like physical rehabilitation and in otherwise not very investable uh, geographical or sectoral context. And I think there's been the significance of a relationship created between the service provider, its public donors and the private investors, in this case, Munichry and the private clients of, uh, of Lombardodier. And that relationship has evolved over time in terms of uh, having a conversation even with someone like Munichry around where else can an insurance company bring skills and products into the space. So I see it as a small, significant, and an opening of opportunities beyond what the size of the humanitarian impact bond is. And then to talk about with a different lens that goes back to, I think, a comment that you picked on, uh, Mark, uh, from, the, um, from the responses uh, before the, 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 the session today, an area where I see huge opportunities, the space of livelihood. Um, now, there is, as you said, there's a gap between what happens in the first six months after the onset of a crisis and linking that to broader development. But as crises are now, we have accepted that now crises are prolonged. If you take, for example, the Syrian crisis, now the average time that refugees spend, for example, in a in a in a in a, in a refugee camp or in a in a non-permanent setting tends to be extended and become semi-permanent. And so I see the space of livelihoods, we're currently working on a product that looks at livelihoods for Syrian refugees and uh, vulnerable local populations as a way to bridge the phases of emergency funding where you're thinking about the most direct response with more longer term and more sustainable solutions. And I think independently of whether it's an impact bond or um, uh, working capitals or other forms of financing, I think there's huge opportunity looking and livelihoods as a part of that solution. So, so can, I, can I ask you, in, in just very briefly, can you describe what that program that you're looking at is? You sort of teased it, so I just, in, in a minute, yeah, can you describe what so that is? Yeah, of course. So it's um, it's an input bond. Actually, it has the the aspiration to become a longer term, more of an outcome fund. We're looking at different programmatic interventions that target Syrian refugees mm -hmm. in countries neighboring of of uh, of, of Syria. 
and looking at how to improve the social and economic reintegration of these refugees in the new local context, which is likely to be a protracted new, uh, a new normal, as we say nowadays with, uh, with COVID. And so um, we did a landscape study where we looked at across different programmatic activities, uh, across microfinance, across vocational training, across support to home-based businesses and other more specialized trainings like coding. Mm -hmm. And we structured the first transaction, which is an impact bond that helps a not-for-profit uh, link Syrian refugees and Jordanian vulnerable population to sustainable jobs and okay. links the payment of the donors not to the training or finding a job, but more to whether the household in the longer term has better income and is as a result more resilient. Ah, okay. Uh, thank you. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and uh, Anya, I, I want to turn to you because earlier in your opening remarks, you observed that adaptation was an area where there was not much uh, private sector investment. Um, how can an organization like GCF and you know, maybe the private sector facility in particular at GCF you know, more proactively look to make investments around adaptation? Are there tools you need? Is there support you need? Um, what needs to fall into place in order for adaptation to be a you know, higher uh, priority? Um, I'd like to give you a couple of examples just to illustrate how actually the private sector can get involved in adaptation. So my favorite example is the Acumen Resilient Agriculture Fund, which works with smallholder farmers across four African countries. Um, this is a project which is set up for a 12-year period, funding from GCF of $26 million and equity funding from Acumen of $30 million. And the ambition is to reach 10 million beneficiaries um, over the 12-year period. So what this project is setting out to do is really to um, support smallholder farmers through setting up uh, a number of initiatives, a number of services, aggregator platforms, digital platforms, providing climate services and financial services, um, such as microcredit, um, microinsurance to smallholder farmers, um, helping to link them into the global value chains for products such as cotton, coffee and rice, and focusing, in fact, on women-headed households very much. Um, but these are, the objective is to really stimulate entrepreneurial activity and, and MSMEs, in particular, the micro, small and medium-sized enterprises. The um, ambition is to have between 18 and 20 successful companies operating by the end of the project. And so these, um, this is a very uh, clear mechanism, you know, of actually stimulating private sector activity within this area of supporting smallholder farmers. And just very quickly, an, a similar uh, example can be found in the area of supplying climate information and early warning systems and what we often call climate services where 
the bulk of the investments are often made by governments in the, the networks that are forecasting um, the, the climate events that are coming. But um, there is really a substantial um, private sector activity that, that can be stimulated, particularly in the area of the operation and maintenance of the early warning systems and the, and the forecasting instrumentation, but also um, in terms of providing insurance products, for example, based on the climate information that's available. So parametric insurance, forecast-based financing, paying out um, on the forecast of a climate event occurring rather than paying out for the damage that happens after the event has occurred. So mm. these are the sorts of innovative products that are being developed and that the private sector is getting very involved in. Thank you. That's fa fascinating. Um, Alberto, I want to uh, turn to you now. What research do you think is needed to better understand how sustainable finance can bridge that humanitarian development piece nexus? And, and how can CGIAR help with this? Thank you, Mark. That is, that is a really good question. So I think we can uh, support by focusing on, on two main areas of work. No? The first one would be around uh, building resilience. So you, we can use science to anticipate uh, what is going to happen. And instead of waiting for a situation that can be, even when being incredibly complex, addressed by development work, and you, what we see is that often leads to a humanitarian situation. So we can anticipate uh, what is likely to happen, and then we can work with farmers and the different communities affected to build resilience to climate change. So that over time, we can generate those revenue streams that Aditi and, and Serena were mentioning before. No? So if we want the private sector to come in, we need to be able to uh, build those uh, systems and, and then create the conditions uh, for farmers to be able to, to generate those revenue streams. And then the second one is around what science does well, which is providing data. Uh, there is a, something that Aridi was mentioning before as well, no? the risk return profile. So what we can do is uh, generate a wealth of data to help understand better what are the risk and what is the risk exposure, and then how to mm, reduce and mitigate those risks. And then we can also look at the return aspect of that, of that ratio, and then we can uh, provide data to understand what is the performance of MSMEs and micro and small medium enterprises and then understand which ones can generate those revenue streams and also what additional revenue streams can be generated from ecosystem services, from carbon and from other revenue streams. So those are the two key pieces that if we uh, were to provide that data, we believe that the private investors would find easier to to make investment decisions. Uh, thank you. And, and Giovanni, turning to you now again from the kind of government perspective, uh, how can governments use their resources more innovatively to leverage private capital? You know, is there a mind, do mindsets need to change in governments in general and the Italian government in particular to help you know, take this the next step forward and further unlock private capital for investments in peace? Um, well, I must say that, um, I mean, 
as as governments uh, uh, and then as donors in general with public funds uh we're all uh, trying to do our best uh and uh, and the green climate fund is one of the examples in order to engage the private sector uh now uh, in, at at the end of the game it's a, it's an issue of combining interests uh, uh of uh, um, an equation which is uh, leading uh, financial investors between risk and return uh, and uh, the uh, aim of, uh, of, uh, of a government uh, in terms of measuring impact. So um, the, real, the real point, I believe, is that we ought to get to a point where there is a common ground in terms of definition uh, and measurability of the impact, uh, because not necessarily we, we're on the same page. Uh, if you think that uh, um, the financial market uh, has been uh, very proactive and, and is very proactive uh, in uh, stimulating, uh, also because it's stimulated by investors, in, in looking for uh, investments uh, that are uh, compliant, if you want, with what uh, investors are asking for, i.e. Uh, environmental, uh, social, and government's uh, impact. Now, how this is linked to the SDGs, which is really the aim of a public donor, uh, is uh, is something that we ought to get to the to a common to a common uh, conclusion. Uh, I'm very confident, uh, also because uh, uh, as uh, uh, donor countries, we are uh, working together with the uh, OECD. Uh, in um, in 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 finding uh, a common ground between pure financial investors and uh, and donors, uh, in finding um, in, in in finding uh, if you want uh, concrete and measurable um, uh, tools uh, to to measure the impact. So. Uh, I believe that uh, it's not a question of uh, of uh, um, changing mindsets uh, from a government standpoint, uh, but it's really trying to bring together the interests of the private uh, and the commercial uh, actors together with uh, with taking care of uh, of development. Um, I was interested in what Aditi was saying about the blending, and uh, I'm uh, even though the the the, uh, the role of blending has been uh, uh, very much increasing in the last years. Uh, one of the interesting things for me is that uh, I'm seeing that from the data that uh, are coming out, the amount of blended finance allocated to the least developed, developed countries is uh, still very low. So I'm just thinking that probably we ought to uh, improve uh, uh, the toolkits that we have as governments in terms of uh, uh, the de-risking uh, on one side, but having clear in mind which are the targets. And Aditi, do you want to respond to that? Uh, you know, I mean, it is interesting that it seems much like development assistance as a whole, um, 
blended finance instruments, you know, the great proportion of it do not actually go to the least developed countries, the countries that are perhaps most vulnerable along that humanitarian development peace nexus. Why is that? And what can be done to spur investment in LDCs or least developed countries? Uh, thanks, Mark. And Giovanni, that's an interesting point that you bring up. And in fact, recently, uh, Convergence um, and the UNCDF uh, put out a report where, where we reflected on this observation that uh, the uh, most of the blended finance flows are not going to the least developed economies. And I think that that ties back uh, to the point uh, that we were talking about earlier that uh, blended finance is most appropriate in a, uh, in a situation where there are uh, investable solutions and where you can generate a financial return. So if uh, if uh, if you are looking at a least developed uh, economy and there is a lot of risk in the market itself, plus if you are looking to do a, a risky investment structure, uh, maybe that is not the right uh, approach or maybe uh, that is not a situation where you're looking at scale, but you're looking at tar targeted uh, interventions. So I think it's it's a question of using different toolkits um, in different places. Um, and one of the things that, that we found um, that has been useful is is market acceleration activity. So we uh, at Convergence have recognized that there are not enough transactions that are actually getting to market where a public or private sector investor can invest. Um, and so what we have done is uh, supported through design funding grants where we are funding the design uh, of these transactions. And an example of that is the, the livelihood impact bond that Serena had mentioned um, to get more of these transactions uh, into the market. Uh, thank you. Does anyone else want to, to jump in? If not, I can move ahead. Uh, okay, so you know, we have just uh, about five or six minutes left and I really want to push uh, all five of you to Think what else needs to be done to unlock uh, private capital in service and to harness private capital in service of climate security. I mean, we started this conversation by noting a $2.5 trillion annual gap. Um, what steps can be taken to move the conversation forward and bring in more sustainable finance uh, to scale in this space? Is there science and data and research we need? Is it a matter of political will? Uh, what else needs to be done? So uh, Anya, I'll, I'll kick that question to you. Uh, from your perspective, how can we unleash and unlock more private capital into this space? Okay, Mark, I think that a lot of it is to do with awareness that um, perhaps private sector investors are, are not yet aware that mechanisms exist like GCF, uh, that are actually actively seeking private capital that are prepared to do the de-risking to involve them in projects um, to provide you know guarantees to to provide equity um, as well as as providing loans at concessional rates to make projects attractive and to get the sort of financial structuring of a project that that will actually make it viable so um we're trying to get the message out there. The private sector facility is actively, you know, wooing private sector investors. 
And we're seeing from year to year, you know, that, that the level of interest is certainly growing. And I think as the portfolio grows and as there are more and more examples of successful projects where you do get financial reflows coming through, where the, the de-risking is, is working um, effectively, you know, then we're going to start seeing that portfolio growing um, and, and hopefully growing exponentially to, to match the urgency of, of the need that we see out there. Thank you. And hopefully this conversation and subsequent podcast episode will help you know, spread the word, as you say, and get the word out. Um, Serena, I'd like to sort of turn that question to you now. What else needs to happen to scale up investments in this space and scale up the kind of projects uh, that need to be undertaken in this space? Sure. And since Anya already talked about awareness, which I think, and also matchmaking, which is something that maybe uh, Aditi can talk at some point, uh, maybe I'll offer a slightly different point of view, um, better products. And so, as I said, I think there are a lot of issues that need to be tackled and finding the right tool that addresses that issue and through efforts like GCF and Convergence, bringing the right uh, um, sources of capital to it. And the second one that I would like to add is also mindset adjustments. And going back to the question you asked earlier from Giovanni, I do think it's not just for public donors, even for private investors, there's still a bit of a mismatch between uh, what they aspire to do. So for example, um, uh, uh, station free value chains or longer term for a public donor perspective, more sustainable programs or longer term funding. And then the mechanics about how capital is allocated and the constraints that hence these actors, not just donors, but also investors have when they actually make funding decisions. And so I do think there's a little bit of a mindset change in terms of, for example, if you talk about the great initiative that Anya mentioned, we work a lot in smallholder finance, the tenors, the time to finance, the time to revenue generation just does not match currently the risk return profiles of many or where the, most of the capital now sits, which is institutional investor, they often take 10 to 12 years to manifest. And so I think it is a little bit of adjust your expectation. There is good money to be made if you have the right expectations and you adjust your tools to be able to actually participate in some of these investment opportunities. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So Aditi, uh, you're, you're name checked in Serena's answer, so I, I must turn to you. Uh, what else do you think needs to be done to scale up private capital in this space? Uh, thanks, Mark, and also Serena. I think, uh, like, like Serena mentioned, matching is, is really important. And you want to make sure that you are matching uh, uh, the private sector to the right set of opportunities and, and to the right tools. And, and one thing I would like to mention here is that we should not overlook local capital markets uh, when we are thinking of financing, especially riskier investments, right? Uh, local capital markets often have money that, you know, understands the, the local investment climate is more familiar uh, with with the risks of that climate and and can invest in situations where you know your traditional institutional capital which is looking for you know uh jurisdictions where they've already invested in or where they're comfortable with or looking at large scale cannot invest so uh using catalytic capital to de-risk local capital market investment i think is also uh another important thing that, that we should be thinking of uh, thank you. And uh, Giovanni, uh, to you, same question and you know, fi final thoughts. What else can be done? What should the next steps be in terms of moving this conversation forward and unleashing private capital? Uh, 
Well, honestly, I think that uh, all the panelists have been touching, uh, at least in my mind, the main, the main, uh, the main uh, changes that need to be made. So, um, from from um, a government uh, standpoint, what I can say is that um, there also needs to be uh, a change uh, uh, in terms of uh, um, being more connected. Uh, to what is happening on the market compared to what is a traditional, if you want, funding uh, mechanism that uh, each donor has. So, um, trying to uh, uh, co-create initiatives with the different players and actors is the only way to get to something that is effective in terms of the beneficiaries, in terms of the donors, in terms of the investors. Uh, thank you. And uh, Alberto, uh, I will turn it to you to close out our, our conversation. Um, what, what should some of our next steps be and where should our focus be at this point? Thank you, Mark. I just wanted to build on what Giovanni just mentioned. I think it's critical. Uh, we need much more collaboration across different actors. There are language barriers, so not always the public sector understands what the private sector needs. And as I was mentioning, the private sector has some expectations that don't match with what the public sector does. And then most of the innovative financial structures, if not all, they always have a wide range of actors involved that come from completely different backgrounds and that are different stakeholders. So I think we need to look at much more collaboration across partners. And then what Giovanni mentioned on the co-creation, I think is critical to understand the comparative advantages of each stakeholder and then what are the strengths and the communities and, and then start building from there. Uh, well, well, thank you, Alan. That's a great note to end it on, uh, the need for collaboration against different sectors. And I think this panel itself is a good example of that, having so many people from so many different perspectives joining this conversation. Thank you all. I hope to see you in September when we do this again and stay safe. Thank you and goodbye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again to the five panelists who joined really from around the world in various time zones. So very big thank you, seriously, to them. And I've gotten some interesting feedback from listeners who are interested in the topic of climate security. So please do send me an email. You can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch with any of the speakers or if you have anything further you'd like to add to the discussion. I would love to hear from you. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye.